Well, let's turn in our Bibles back to Luke chapter 13. Glad to be back in Luke. Uh, we're going to uh, walk through this passage bit by bit, so it's going to be really helpful for you to have your uh, Bible open in front of you, and uh, that's our regular practice. Uh, as is praying, before we come to read God's Word, we need His help to uh, understand it and apply it in our lives, so let's pray and ask for God's help in doing that. Our Father, in Colossians 3, we're encouraged to let this message of Christ dwell in us richly through singing psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, doing it with gratitude in our hearts to you. But we're also called to do it as we teach and admonish one another. And even as we do that now, and afterwards as we encourage one another with the word that we've heard, we pray that you would bless us, fill us with your Spirit, uh, teach us and help us to apply all that you would have us know and learn and live out in order to be those who testify to the greatness of your son. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I was uh, sitting at gate three in Edinburgh Airport waiting to board a flight when I noticed some commotion barging its way along the corridor. Uh, at first, I thought it must be Duhan van der Merwe with the way that people are being thrown aside. Uh, but it was the Clarkses. Uh, you don't know who they are. Uh, I actually don't know them either. But I know their name because I'd heard it announced on the tannoy at the neighboring gate five times already. This is the final boarding call for passengers, John and Amanda. I was getting increasingly angry every time he said it. Amanda Clarkson for Delta flight, wherever it was, to New York. Please proceed to gate four immediately. This gate is now closing. Well, as they approached the gate, red-faced and out of puff, needless to say, out of pure nosiness, I paused my podcast and turned off the noise-canceling headphones. Because the door was already shut. And aviation rules say when the door's shut, it's shut, and you can't open it again. I did feel a bit bad for them. But uh, Mrs. Clarkson, the Clarksons just did not get this aviation fact, right? Mr. Clarkson begged, please, like the plane's right there. Just let us through, open the door. But the lady said, I'm really sorry, we can't do that. Mrs. Clarkson appealed, a bit more flustered, we were just in Weatherspoons on TikTok and lost track of time. Mr. Clarkson glared at her as if to say, honey, not helping. And it didn't at all, because the gate attendant said, I'm really sorry, you didn't come when you needed to. This door is not opening. Now, the color drained from their faces. I did feel bad for them. Mrs. Clarkson sat slumped in the nearest seat, sobbing. Mr. Clarkson swore a bit paced up to the window, looked at the plane being readied for takeoff with his hands on his head, shocked. Now, I start with that story because really I think it serves as a modern illustration of what Jesus is trying to drive home in the passage that we are looking at tonight. People who come with some expectation of getting, not to New York, but to the new heaven and new earth, will find their hopes dashed because they didn't go through the door of salvation when they should have. It's as simple as that. As our text says tonight, and this would be my one sentence summary on screen, the door to salvation is open, 
but one day it will be shut. Make every effort to enter today. That's 2 Corinthians 5.15. Now, the majority of us here have already done that, right? We've already entered, but that doesn't mean that we can switch off. Because what this passage does for us who believe is reminds us that evangelism, sharing and proclaiming this gospel, is an absolutely urgent matter. For others, though, for those who haven't yet looked to Jesus for salvation, the application as we go through this, I hope, will be plain and simple. Enter in. Enter in to the salvation that is open to you today. And listen in, and I'll tell you how shortly. But for others still, I think there's a particular kind of person, a kind of religious person, maybe children who've grown up in a Christian family, maybe students who've lived for the past 18 years attending the church that their parents attended and so on, who thinking, well, you know, I must be, my parents are Christians, therefore I must be Christians. You know, or I've been going to church, so surely I'm a believer, surely. Well, we need to check our hearts, and I think this passage really speaks specifically to, have a, to those who have a rel- religious background. Because, oh, I've said this before here many times, but going to church makes you a Christian as much as going to McDonald's makes you a big man. It's just not how it works. You need to repent and believe the good news. And check your heart, and if you find you haven't entered, enter in. Let's look at this passage in two chunks, shall we? First, Let's look at the open door. Strive to enter while you can. That's verses 22 to 24. Now look with me, verse 22. Uh, We locate ourselves as to where we are in the timeline of Luke's very ordered account. Verse 22 says, Jesus went through towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Now, to see him do this is no surprise because in Luke 9, 51, back a few pages, Luke already told us, Christ's destination. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And then within that same chapter, Luke 9, 21, Jesus tells us why he's going to Jerusalem. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He's going to Jerusalem to die and to rise for our sins for our justification before God. Now, what's he doing as he goes? Well, he's doing what he said in Luke chapter 4 that he was going to be doing, proclaiming the good news of this kingdom that opens blind eyes and sets prisoners free and all of that glorious stuff. Now, verse 23 tells us, look with me, that at one time someone asked a question about salvation. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, what prompted the question, we don't quite know. But based on all that we've seen in Luke so far, I'd offer two suggestions. One, the low numbers of people actually following Jesus as a disciple. While crowds were large, the number of disciples was still small. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? The second thing, I think, is the the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus. If Jesus is the Messiah, as he claims to be, the one that everyone's been waiting for, why don't the Pharisees, the religious leaders who've been teaching us about this Messiah for years and years and years, don't believe? In fact, what we've seen in Luke so far is that they reject him. They think he's demonic. 
Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, how does Jesus answer that question? Take a look with me. Well, when you look at his reply, you have to say not directly, at least not at first. He's he's not dodging the question as such. In fact, what Luke records for us in this next chapter, between this point of uh, chapter 13 and verse 22 through to the middle of chapter 17, we're going to be told not just how many will be saved, that is millions by the way, but who will be saved. And it may not be the people you expect. But Jesus on this particular occasion, in this instance, responds to the general question with a much more pressing personal issue. So for Jesus, the question isn't, are a few going to be saved, but are you? Are you going to be saved? Hence the command about this door, verse 24, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Now what is the narrow door? There there isn't any detail about this door except for the fact that it's narrow. That's it. But what is it? Is it a physical door? If so, where is it? Why is it narrow and how do you enter it? Well, let's look at the text and find out. The open door is the entrance to salvation. Now, two things show us that. One, the answer that Jesus gives corresponds with the question that is asked. Salvation is the subject, the topic of the question, and Jesus doesn't change the topic. Salvation is still the issue. Secondly, the imagery of verse 29, jump down with me. What does entry through through the narrow door give you access to, or not entering deny you access to, we should say? A heavenly banquet. And the heavenly banquet is one of the Old Testament's richest pictures of the saved enjoying heaven. You can read about that in Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8. We don't have time to jump into it just now. Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. Have a look at that later. But it tells you about the best food, the best host, God himself. The best occasion, God's salvation is celebrated. Now, the question that naturally pops into every head then is, where is this door? If this door is the entryway to salvation, how do I find it? Well, the answer is, it's Jesus. And you go to him. Now, for those hearing Jesus speak that day, the door was right in front of them. The entryway to salvation is him. And everything Luke has written so far in this gospel account helps us understand why that is the case. I mean, in chapters 1 and 2, he is born miraculously. He's the eternal son of God who entered time. Chapter 3 tells us why. It's because he's been identified as heaven's son by God the Father from heaven and by the Spirit descending on him like a dove. He's identified for us as the eternal son of God. In chapter 4, his mission is unveiled, the proclamation of a kingdom that people like us are invited to enter. And then chapters 5 through to 13, he speaks words of power, performs incredible deeds that make his words wonderfully believable, all confirming for us that he is the way to salvation, therefore He is the narrow door that is being spoken about. It's not a door, a physical door in some heavenly, in some earthly temple somewhere. He himself is the doorway to salvation. Now, if you need any more convincing, John, the the writer of the fourth gospel, uses a similar, records Jesus, sorry, using a similar analogy in a couple of places. John 10, verse 9. 
I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And again, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Simple, right? Straightforward. Just go to Jesus and enter God's salvation. Fish, bash, bosh. Well, Jesus doesn't think so. It's not as easy as it sounds. And isn't it interesting, as I've said, that the only detail we have about this door is that it's narrow. And the narrowness of this door is something that we have to consider ourselves. The door to salvation is not wide like our front door there, where you can just kind of saunter in easily. You don't have to squeeze in. Neither is this door automatic, like Ikea's front door, granting effortless entry. The narrow door... The narrowness of the door communicates for us that entry isn't easy. In a sense, it's hard to go through. Now, I pastored a church in St. Andrews before coming to Charlotte Chapel. Uh, It was a very, very old building and tiny and badly designed. Uh, I'd enter and exit that building each week through the side door, which was ridiculously narrow. And I can't tell you how many times I got stuck trying to go through it with my backpack on or just carrying a couple of books in my hand. Points more to my stupidity than it does about the narrowness of the door, I suppose. But to get through took some adjustment. To get through uh, took some effort. And the same goes for this salvation through the narrow door that is Jesus Christ. If the narrow door is Jesus, that means you need some adjustment to get to heaven through him. In fact... It's more than just adjustment. You actually need to fight your way through this door. Now, what does that mean? And where do I get that from? Well, the phrase, make every effort, or as you may have it in the ESV, strive to enter, in the original language is the word agonizomai. Now, do you see an English word emerging from that Greek word? It's agony. We use the word agony to describe extreme pain, but back then they often used it to describe extreme effort. You'd expect to find it in sentences that described the discipline and endurance and extreme effort put in by an athlete in training, pushing past inbuilt physical and psychological resistance like pain barriers and mind matters. Think about that and that application of the words and realize it gives you an idea of the kind of effort that Jesus thinks it takes to enter the narrow door for his salvation. Fascinating, isn't it? Now, why does it take such effort? Is it because Jesus is really grumpy and he's kind of slightly barring the way to make it really difficult for you? Is he standing there to trip you up, to make it difficult? No, of course not. Christ has done everything he possibly can do. He laid down his life for us. To make sure that there is a door in the first place. But Jesus explained why it may take some effort to enter his salvation back in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, 24. Flick back with me. Flick back with me. Keep your eyes on it. In Luke 9, 23 and 24, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. That's why it's hard to enter. That's why it takes some adjustment, some effort. Because it takes humility to enter this salvation. Self-denial. A willingness to associate with Jesus Christ and his suffering. And live not for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Now we have as much of an inbuilt sinful resistance to that as our muscles and our stamina have towards exercise. That's why it takes agonizomai, it takes agony, it takes a striving, it takes an effort, it takes a fight. Now let me be really crystal clear about what I'm about to say, right, and what I'm saying right now. This does not mean, this does not, 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 not mean that salvation is dependent on you. This does not mean that God takes 99 steps towards you and you have to take the one. No, Jesus doesn't allow us to draw conclusions like that. Even within this gospel account of Luke, Luke 7, 49 to 50 says salvation is a gift from him received by faith alone. Faith alone, it's a gift. But repentance is necessary and sinful people like me and you do not find that easy. Do you find self-denial easy? No. Of course we don't. We are self-serving and we are good at it. Friend, if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a believer, I wonder how this sounds to you. I, I do want you to realize that the fact that there is an open door to salvation, that is forgiveness of sins, the promise of life now and in eternity beyond death through faith in Jesus Christ. The fact that this door is open at all is staggeringly wonderful. It is so super kind of him because God is holy, infinitely perfect in all his attributes and you're not. None of us are. By rights, the Lord could wind it all up right now and would be justified in his judgment of all who would reject him. But in this open door that Jesus talks about here and the fact that it remains open to this day, even 2,000 years later, I want to impress upon you his patience, his, his will and his want to see people like you Turn to him in repentance and faith and believe the good news for yourself so that you don't face what we see in Revelation. The door is open. It's open to you. So make every effort to enter while you can. Because as the rest of this passage shows, there is a day coming when you can't. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Why not? One day the door will be closed and it will be impossible to enter. And this is point two, closed door or shut door. See the experience of those who have. Notice in the rest of the text that Jesus urges 
an urgent response to the gospel by showing us the effort and the experience of those who miss the opportunity to enter this door. It will be shut one day when the owner who is who represents the Lord himself shuts it. The sign that that door is shut is that Christ himself will return in glory and every eye will see him, even as we were singing in that song just before the sermon. But every effort to enter after the door is shut will be useless. That's what verses 25 to 27 show us. No amount of pleading will get you in. You see that? Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Now look at that appeal of theirs. Look at the appeal that they make to the Lord. What is wrong with that appeal? What is missing from their words? There is no apology. There is no recognition of wrongdoing, is there? There's no, oh my word, I'm not in. How could I have got this so wrong? I'm really sorry. There's no emergency repentance even. It's just like, oh, sir, <laughs> please let me in. It's like the Lord has made some kind of a mistake. They make their appeal out of some sense of entitlement. But look at the Lord's response. I don't know you or where you come from. Now think about that statement. At the most basic level, we can claim to know someone if we know their name and where they come from. Oh, there's Paul from Wales, or Liam from Upfall, or Andy from Bristol, or whatever. But God, the owner of the house, denies knowing the people asking to get in the most, he denies knowing them at the most basic level. Showing us that once that door is closed and the opportunity is missed, no amount of pleading will get you in. Secondly, no pretense over friendship will get you in either. Verse 26, then you will say, well, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. We heard that Sermon on the Mount thing, you know. We heard you stand up the feast and say, I am the light of the world. That was a great talk. You know, they're appealing though on, for a special entry on the basis of some friendship that doesn't exist. Hey, do you remember when we were at Simon's house? We had the goat stew. Josiah told an inappropriate joke. Do you remember? Like, I was there. You were there. We were there together. But there's some kind of pretense that just eating with him somehow meant knowledge, saving knowledge, true friendship knowledge. That's why the Lord replies a second time, verse 27, I don't know you or where you come from. It's striking, isn't it? Hanging out with Jesus isn't the same as following Jesus. Like hearing his words isn't enough to merit entry into the feast of salvation that is held in his honor for the saved. Which is why this passage is such a wake-up call to the one or two here perhaps who may think that simply by turning up to church reserves a seat at the feast, it absolutely doesn't. Only through faith in Jesus can we count ourselves his friend. Only by 
appropriating to ourselves through faith the blood that forgives our sins. But these people are not his friends. No pleading or pretense over friendship counts for anything. That's why the Lord says, verse 27b, away from me, you evildoers. You're not friends. You're enemies. You're not those who do good in the name of Christ as those who follow him do. You're evildoers. Can you imagine what that must have been like or what that would be like for them? I mean, have you ever been turned away from something you expected to attend? I don't know, having a ticket for a Taylor Swift concert and being turned away because it's a fake. I don't know why that's the first concert that came to head. It's worrying. It's a horrible feeling being turned away. I actually had this a while ago on a return flight home from Johannesburg. It's where I'm getting all my sermon illustrations from now, clearly. But my original flight with British Airways was cancelled. It was a disaster. They booked me on a KLM flight leaving the same night. That was genius, okay? But when I turned up to check in, the lady behind the KLM desk said, I'm sorry, Mr. Garvey, you do not have a seat on a plane. And I laughed very nervously. It must have scared her a little bit. I felt a pang of anxiety in my belly, and I smiled, though, as I presented my boarding pass on my phone with a seat number written on it, 31C. That's where it was, okay? Confident that this young lady was clearly wrong, but she wasn't. And she explained. She said, British Airways have forced booked you onto this flight, a flight that was already full. There's somebody already sitting in 31C. So I said... I'm quite happy to sit on their knee. I'm sure they won't mind. I really, really, panic was starting to set in. I really, really would like to get home. But the more the conversation dawned on me, the more the conversation went on, the more it dawned on me, I'm I'm just not going home today. I'm meant to be getting on that plane, and I'm not. I tried every trick in the book, and it was just no use, and it felt horrible. It felt horrible momentarily for a few hours. And then I did get on the plane. But think how much worse it would be when actually someone's eternal fate is sealed away from God in heaven, turned away by him with absolutely zero chance whatsoever of a late entry or taking up a cancellation. There's no standby when God calls time on time. When Christ returns, that is it. And despite what Rob Bell and other erroneous false teachers will tell you, there is no universal entry after death. The door is open now. An entry into the salvation through Jesus Christ is today. The only opportunity that we have to enter in is before we die or he comes back, whichever comes first. And as if to drive the point home, look at what Christ himself conveys in verses 28 to 30. The experience of those shutouts will be horrific. There will be weeping there, gnashing of teeth. So those who are denied entry and turned away from salvation, they'll experience 
deep sorrow. That's what the weeping signifies. It's a picture of total devastation. Those who are denied entry and turned away from salvation experience great anger. That's what the gnashing of teeth implies. So even when justly refused entry, people respond angrily. But their sorrow and their anger are compounded by who they see taking their seats and enjoying the feast in their place. Verse 28, the weeping and gnashing of teeth is in response to seeing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Now, this isn't the case of them being sad because they're not able to meet the most famous dead guy that they would like to meet in heaven. These are Israel's patriarchs, the figureheads, the guy whose name you claim as your own and whose promise you expect to participate in. Oh, they're in, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets. But many who claimed just by mouth or by virtue of their family bloodline to be Abraham's children are not. They may carry his blood in their veins, but not his faith in their heart. That is the way. And those who added their amen to God's words of warning delivered through these prophets, they didn't respond. They didn't deny self. They didn't take up their cross. They didn't follow the Messiah when he came. And that's only half their misery. There's more. The misery is compounded by the sight of these people. People who in life just were deemed completely undeserving of a place at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. In verses 29 to 30, Jesus shows us that just because Israel shut out doesn't mean that his table will not be full. No, people will come from east and west and north and south and take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. The Gentiles, people like us. And so the guy who raised his hand at the start has his answer. Are only a few going to be saved? Yeah, well, a million will be saved. Millions upon millions will be saved. Just maybe not the people that you, the hearers on that day, expected. For thousands from all over the world will come and take their seat at the feast. That was the promise given to Abraham, carried through Isaac and Jacob. That was the reminder that was delivered through the prophets. Who's going to come and enjoy this feast? Sons and daughters that you did not bear. What does that mean? People coming from every nation to take their place at the feast in the kingdom of God. God's plan was always that through the rejection of his son, the gospel might spread not just to one nation, but to all, so that all might have a place at his feast. All may take a seat at his table if they enter through the narrow gate. Indeed, verse 30, those who are last, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. There will be many surprises on that day, in other words. You'll no doubt be surprised to find some people there, some people not there. But verse 30 suggests that even when we're looking uh, at where people are seated, that it'll probably be a flip of what we would have expected down here on earth. The first in our eyes, people with class, as it were. 
that we honor down here as honored guests will be sitting perhaps in a lowly place. The last, the people we, we, we class in this life as weak or dishonorable or maybe haven't done much for the kingdom in our eyes in some fashion will be greatly honored at that feast. Now, what does this mean for us? Brothers and sisters, can you see how helpful this message must have been to believers back then who were confused about salvation? Are only a few going to be saved? Like, What impact do you think that had on those who looked at the Pharisees and thought, why do they not believe? What impact do you think it had on those who looked at the low numbers coming to Christ, whether they're in Israel at that point, or as Luke is writing this gospel, as he tracks with the Apostle Paul journeying around Europe, planting churches and proclaiming the gospel, seeing low numbers coming to faith and many people rejecting Jesus. How do they figure that out? How does that compute? Well, you can see how that might add a little bit of assurance and help to those who are thinking, well, if many people aren't coming, am I, am I wrong to believe this myself? No, you're not. You're not, and don't forget that the reason, as we have in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, the reason why Luke writes this gospel account is so that Theophilus and everybody who reads this account may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. This is about assurance, this story. So it reinforces understanding. Through understanding, it reinforces our faith. Okay, God's got a plan. It doesn't always work out the way that I think it ought to work out. But he's doing his thing. And I'm not daft for believing it. Nor am I daft for entering this kingdom of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ, through this self-denial and this effort and this fight that I'm going through. But the key application for us, for each of us, is to ensure, of course, that we have all made the effort to enter the narrow door. Like I said earlier, some of us are riding the coattails of parents' faith. Some of us arriving for uni and we're thinking, well, I've now got no one breathing down my neck telling me what to do. Listen, have you personally entered salvation through faith in Christ? Believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved today if you have not. And again, I am conscious that the danger with a passage like this is for those who are already through the narrow door to start to question whether or not they are. Remember, it's about assurance. I should have said that before. If you've repented of your sin and thrown yourself in the mercy of Jesus Christ, it's not you. You don't have to stress. If you've joined this church and you've, been, you've had the testimony of that faith considered by elders who interviewed you, by the members who talk with you and meet with you regularly, then you should have confidence. Remember the assurance is there. But what this text should definitely do for us is, is compel each and every one of us who believe to show as many people as possible that there is a door to salvation. Urgency, friends, is what this text impresses on us. Because one day, entry through this door will be impossible. And I've got names and faces and people I love 
are going through my head right this second, and I know you do too. Those are the ones who need to hear. Even the people we don't know need to hear. We need to tell as many people as possible. And again, if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. Jesus offers everyone a place. So come while you can. Because once the door is closed, it's closed. Let's take a moment to pray together. In the quietness, maybe over the next 30 seconds, in your own heart, please just pray your own prayers of response to him. Maybe it is a prayer of repentance. Say, sorry for sin. Thank you for sending Jesus. Please come into my life. Maybe it's a prayer asked for people you know who don't yet know him. Take a few moments to pray. salvation for sinners such as us thank you for sending your son and love to be our savior to die for our sins on that cross and be raised again to life to prove his teaching to prove that the sacrifice that was offered on our behalf was accepted by him that truly through faith in him we have entry to the feast and are justified in your sight lord what to be those who tell others with urgency about this hope and day to encourage many to make every effort to enter through it and not be surprised when many don't because they're unwilling to make the effort to deny self and take up their cross and follow you but lord let us rejoice with those who send those whose eyes are opened who believe on account of your goodness and the way that you have made thank you and we pray in Jesus name well to remind us of uh, this assurance that we ought to have we're going to stand up and sing of Christ's finished work let's stand and sing it was finished